This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ways that extreme inequality and many of the worst instincts and repercussions of capitalism are being upheld and perpetuated by our culture of praising the wealthy for their philanthropy. Clips today come from Future Perfect, Jackman Radio, Tiny Spark, The Brian Lehrer Show, and Rationally Speaking. Richard White is a Stanford professor, and he literally wrote the book on the Gilded Age. It's a period in American history stretching from 1870 to 1900 or so. And it's a time when business was booming for a small group of people. It's the age where you get the word the idle rich. People who have pet monkeys for whom they throw banquets and that the banquets are served on silver platters. The feasts in private homes, one of them I remember is it's in a stable. And so all of the waiters are going to be on horses. And the guy's favorite horse is the guest at the banquet who drinks out of a champagne bowl and gets drunk. So you have drunken rich people on top of drunken horse right around this stable in which there are liveried waiters serving this extravagant meal. That's the kind of stuff they do. This is Future Perfect on the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's a show less about rich people dining on horseback and more about trying to do good. In the 21st century, we don't have many horse banquets, but we do have... A billion-dollar super yacht that can turn into a submarine. A music extravaganza on a supposed private island where tickets cost up to $12,000. Yes, he did actually purchase the dead shark for a reported $8 million. Well, how about the Da Vinci book that uh, we had Bill Gates pay for $30 million? Terry, what do you think of that? Lots of people, including historians like Richard White, think we're living in a second Gilded Age. And it's not just because the horse banquets of yesteryear look a little like the fire festivals of today. In the first Gilded Age, some of the wealthiest people started giving away huge amounts of money. New this morning, Microsoft founder Bill Gates is personally donating $100 million. Of his and now, philanthropists are spending millions, even billions, again. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg making a massive $1.8 billion donation to his alma mater. Zuckerberg says his family is going to donate a billion dollars a year for the next three years through a new foundation called the Chan Zuckerberg. And sure, maybe that's better than spending money on super yachts, but it comes with its own set of problems. This season, we're going to look at donations in our modern Gilded Age. We'll tackle big gifts, big donors, and big questions like, what do huge injections of private money do to a democracy? But to make sense of the current Gilded Age, we're first going to dive into the history of the original Gilded Age. There had always been divisions of wealth in the United States, but there had never really been great fortunes until after the Civil War. I'm talking about fortunes which you could never spend in your lifetime and your children could never spend in their lifetime. And where is this wealth coming from? What kind of businesses and pursuits? The wealth is coming from a set of new industries which go around industrializing America. Um, the railroads provide a huge amount of wealth. They're the, they're the biggest industry in the United States. Um, Standard Oil produces the Rockefeller fortune. Steel, which initially is sold mostly to the railroads, produces the Carnegie fortune. Let's be clear. Men like Carnegie, Rockefeller, Stanford, 
they couldn't have made their fortunes without government help. Like, Carnegie lobbied and bribed government officials to maintain tariffs on steel from Britain and other countries. That helped Carnegie sell a lot of steel and get rich. Stanford benefited even more directly. He got a huge chunk of government subsidies to build railroads, and then he ripped the government off. Also, there were basically no taxes put on any of this money. It was a very good time to be rich and a terrible time to be poor. Let's say you are a cigar maker in the tenements of New York. And what you find is two small room apartments in a tenement, which somebody has subleased from the owner, and they bring you in, and the whole place just reeks of tobacco. There's tobacco leaves that are drying, they're hanging from the ceiling, the whole place is just full of tobacco dust. You live among this, you roll the tobacco, and your children learn to do the same thing. They eat among the tobacco, they play among the tobacco. The whole place is literally this small tobacco factory, except it's in a tenement building. And you do this to make a living, you have to work 10, 12, 14 hours a day. This is, this is your life. And then there were the thousands and thousands of people leading miserable lives to make men like Andrew Carnegie richer, workers in his steel mills. The Carnegie industries are awful. And by awful, I mean they kill people. There's a, one study of the Carnegie South Works and um, one quarter of all new immigrant workers. These are going to be unskilled workers, probably the first industrial job they've ever had. One quarter of them, over 3,000 in total, are going to be killed or seriously injured. To repeat that, 3,000 people in about a nine-year window. Imagine killing or maiming 3,000 of your workers. My producer, Bird, actually found a detailed description of the mills. It's by this novelist and poet named Hamlin Garland. He went to visit the Carnegie Steel Mills in 1893 in Homestead, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. A year before he visited, Homestead had experienced one of the bloodiest strikes in American history. 35 people died. Hearing Garland's account, it's not hard to understand why workers were striking. Everywhere, the yellow mud of the street lay kneaded into a sticky mass through which groups of pale, lean men slouched in faded garments, grimy with the soot and grease of the mills. He starts off describing this squalid town, and then he goes to the steel mill itself, and he looks at the pits there. I watched the men as they stirred the deeps beneath. I dared not move for fear of flying metal, the swift swing of a crane, or the sudden lurch of a great carrier. The men worked with a sort of desperate attention and alertness. That looks like hard work, I said to one of them. Hard? I guess it's hard. I lost 40 pounds the first three months I came into this business. It sweats the life out of a man. The sweat drips through my sleeves and runs down my legs and fills my shoes. But that isn't the worst of it, said my guide. It's a dog's life. Those men work 12 hours and sleep and eat 10 more. A man doesn't have much time for anything else. Can't see your friends or do anything but work. The converting mill was the most gorgeous and dangerous of all. They call this the death trap. A fountain of sparks arose. The pot began to burn to the whiter flame. It's nearly ready to pour! The men were shoveling away slag in the rain of falling sparks. They worked with desperate haste. Down came the vessel until out of it streamed the smooth flow of 
terribly beautiful molten metal. As it ran nearly empty and the ladle swung away, the dropping slag fell to the group, exploding and leaping viscously. Sometimes a chain breaks and the iron explodes. Sometimes the slag falls on the workmen. Of course, if everything is working all smooth and a man watches out, all right. But after they've been on duty for 12 hours without sleep, running like hell, that's a different story. What do those men get who are shoveling slag up there? 14 cents an hour. To work is literally to die in many of these mills. Your chances of escaping serious injury are slim. And even if you survive, it exhausts you. You rarely see people over 50 working in these mills because it simply so brutalizes you, so taxes your strength that you cannot go on. And then when you're so exhausted you can't do it anymore, what happens to you? At that point, you are probably, the good thing is you're probably going to die soon. So amidst all of this, what is it that drives people like Carnegie to start doing massive philanthropy after they've amassed these gigantic fortunes by exploiting workers like that? Well, for Carnegie, the two are intimately connected. I mean, first of all, he wants to justify the social order that has given him great wealth and which he recognizes is not necessarily paying off for his workers or many other people in America. And so what he says is that, you know, these fortunes would be obscene if I was going to keep them. But what I'm going to do with my fortune is to give it away for the, what he calls the progress of the race. Carnegie actually pulled all of his ideas together in this essay he called The Gospel of Wealth. He actually recorded himself reading part of it years later when he was in his 70s. I quote from the gospel. Published 25 years ago. This then is spoiled to be the duty of the man of wealth. Basically, he starts off saying, yes, we have a lot of inequality in the modern world. But actually, that's a good thing, because I know how to spend your money better than you do. He goes on, and I really want you to hear what he said. We have a reenactment for you, because it's hard to understand the original tape. The man of wealth thus becoming the mere agent and trustee for his poorer brethren, bringing to their service his superior wisdom, experience, and ability to administer, doing for them better than they could do for themselves. So what Carnegie's saying there is, he has superior wisdom. He should be spending money, not you. But he's going to spend the money on your behalf so you can become wise like he is. It's all part of a myth he created. Andrew Carnegie, the self-made man. Andrew Carnegie rose in the world because he was very able. There's no denying that. And because he also made connections. Those connections gave him a leg up, and they let him make insider deals and profit from tariffs. He then invents a version of himself which eliminates all the connections that he'd had with the rich, with people who ran the Pennsylvania Railroad, with all the insider deals that he had, with his ability to um, get politicians to have high tariffs. And he imagines himself as somebody who just pulled himself up by the bootstraps. And all he needed to pull himself up by the bootstraps, he thought, was an opportunity. Men possessed of this peculiar talent for affairs, under free play of economic forces, must, of necessity, 
soon be in receipt of more revenue than can be judiciously expended on themselves. Translation. Men like me with a talent for business basically just can't help but make money. But Carnegie was also clear that he thought every person could nurture a talent for business in themselves. This is why he goes to libraries. He will give the opportunity to young men like himself to improve themselves and to rise up in the world. He builds a lot of libraries for American workers to improve themselves. Like, a lot, a lot. 1,689 across the country. My neighborhood library in Mount Pleasant, D.C., is actually one of them. And the odds are good that your town has at least one, too. The problem with the library is, yeah, there's a library, but meanwhile, the workers are working a 12-hour day. If you add in the hours they're going to sleep and the hours they're going to eat and the hours they're going to go back and forth from home, that takes another 10 hours. That's 22 hours. So these guys have two hours left. So I said, by the time we are done working and we're exhausted, we don't read. (laughs) That's not what we are going to do. If you want people to read, if you want to educate people, don't work them 12 hours a day and pay them more money. Carnegie's story highlights some of the key things we can learn from Gilded Age philanthropy. One, the way that philanthropists were making their money was sometimes dubious, sometimes because of corruption and helpful government subsidies, and sometimes because of terrible labor conditions. And two, yes, they were giving the money away, but these philanthropists got to spend it according to their own eccentric whims, which is how Carnegie's workers got beautiful libraries that they couldn't use. So you could imagine a defender of the Stanfords or or Carnegie looking at this and saying, yes, it's self-aggrandizing, yes, they're making the decisions, but isn't it better that they do this rather than only throwing lavish balls with horses? Isn't it better that they at least give something back even if they're deciding how that happens? What's the problem with that view? Well, the problem with that view is if you're going to set the bar low enough that here's what we do. Either we we get on our horses and ride around the stable or we get to control what we do with our fortune. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much I go with the Carnegie's and the Stanford's, but that's not the whole realm of choices. The realm of choices are, first of all, why should you get to decide the money and why should you have all this money anyway? Why weren't you taxed heavily to make sure that a lot of this money would be devoted to public purposes, not decided by you, but decided by the public yourself? We live in a democracy, after all. Why aren't you forced to, in fact, pay workers higher wages that they get more of a decision of what they do? Why aren't there greater controls over public laws that will stop you from using public benefits to line your own pockets? Because after all, the Stanford's made their money from public subsidies to railroads. Carnegie made his money largely because the state gave a tariff that allowed him to um, keep out English steel that otherwise would have competed with him. And he He says himself that I owe my fortune to the tariff. So there's public policies that gave you this fortune. Why aren't there public policies which, in fact, take away part of that fortune and devote it to public purposes? Rich people's do-goodery doesn't attract enough critical attention. Perhaps because the journalists and academics who would normally do that sort of work don't want to alienate potential sources of funding. 
The roles of elite private foundations in shaping social science research and co-opting political activism are both profound but little remarked upon. For example, the Ford Foundation had a heavy hand in shaping race relations and our understanding of them in the U.S., shifting the focus, as Leah Gordon told us in a June 2015 appearance on Behind the News, from power to prejudice, from structural concerns like the power of money and control of the state to individual psychology and feelings. Ford has also been all over U.S. foreign policy for decades, from aiding Suharto's coup in Indonesia, to training the economists who serve Pinochet in Chile, to co-opting community organizers in South Africa. Similar things can be said of names like Rockefeller and Carnegie, who worked to limit the militancy of the political left at home and abroad. More recently, a fresh approach to do-goodery has arisen among the nouveau riche, not philanthropy in the traditional sense, pots of money administered by semi-independent program officers, but a more directly business-inspired approach. Now we've got Mark Zuckerberg and hedge fund guys running school reform pretty directly, and we've got businesses who think that their activities can do good in themselves. Doing well by doing good has become a mantra for this new class, with their B corporations and their triple bottom lines. Theory and practice are worked out at august forums like Davos and TED Talks, which feature only the finest thought leaders. Strangely, none of these approaches, either that of traditional philanthropy or of this new age kind, suggest anything like a challenge to rule by the rich. Quite the contrary. By taking the edge off that rule and by giving an impression of caring, they hope to sustain and reinforce it. As I said, it's hard to find much critical thinking about any of these structures. For-profit publishers are little interested for frank class reasons, and most non-profit outfits, like, say, NPR, aren't either because they're part of the problem. Anand Garuderas' book, Winners Take All, is a distinguished exception. It's a highly intelligent, sharply observed, critical look at the newer ways of doing good, the more nakedly business and entrepreneur-driven sort as opposed to traditional Ford Rockefeller-style philanthropy. Anand Garuderas is a journalist based in Brooklyn. His previous books include India Calling, an intimate portrait of a nation's remaking, and The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas, a study of capital punishment. Long ago, he did a stint with McKinsey, the global consulting firm whose approach to business has become a template for this new style of doing good. Anand Garitaris. You write about a thing you call market world uh, and its philosophy of win-win-ism. Uh, could you define those things for us? Yeah, market world is a complex of people and institutions that believe that it is possible. Elite people and elite institutions that believe it's possible to both do good and do well that believe that you can do well by doing good and do good by doing well, that you can kind of make a difference in the lives of the poor while also making a killing, um, that you can change the world for others while also making sure that your own world doesn't change um, as a privileged person, that you can, um, that you can, you know, fight for the least among us while clinging to a system that keeps you on top and predictably, reliably, foreseeably shuts most people out. Um, and this is a group of people who that spans, you know, billionaires signing the giving pledge all the way down to those college graduates deciding what to do with their lives and deciding to go to J.P. Morgan because that's where they have been convinced that they can learn to make real change. It encompasses the conference circuit of TED and Aspen and Davos and all these places where, you know, millionaires and billionaires sit in the audience while thinkers stand there hoping to keep earning their patronage by by talking about the problems of the world in ways that don't accuse the winners of our age and that, that respect them and don't shame them and cast them as being part of the solution, not part of the problem. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of vast 
vast territory market world is, and it is fueled, as you said, by this ideology of the win-win, which is, it's kind of a, a variant of the old Adam Smith, you know, leave rich people alone because just them doing them will, will create prosperity for the society. Win-win is a new more strident idea that has taken hold in our time that rich people, people who've succeeded in business are actually the most capable solvers of problems and doers of things. And it should be they who not only run businesses, but think about how our schools should be. Think about how to fix the American opportunity structure. Think about how to fight poverty. Think about how to empower women. And we kind of live in the grips of an age in which we are at risk of confusing Sheryl Sandberg for a feminist thinker and confusing, you know, Mark Zuckerberg for an education reformer or one man substitute for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and, con you know, risk confusing kind of Mike Bloomberg for a climate change policy. And we've outsourced a lot of our change making to billionaires as our conventional public problem solving has withered, but withered because billionaires and business interests have spent the last 30 or 40 years uh, waging a war on it and causing it to wither. Now, what you're describing is an ideology that has uh, taken over uh, the mainstream of the Democratic Party and similar formations around the world, really, you know, the, the Blairite Labor Party, now now in remission. Some of the continental social democratic parties have, have embraced this kinds of thinking. We can understand how the right is just let the market do everything. But the innovation over the last, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 some years is that uh, this has become the dominant ideology of people who used to be considered liberals or Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I think what what is obvious is there was a war waged by the right against government. And everybody knows that history and knows that story. And you and everybody knows Ronald Reagan standing up and saying government's not the solution. Government's the problem. And Margaret Thatcher saying, you know, there's. There's no such thing as society. There's only men and women and families, and families must look to themselves first, those kind of things. And we know that Koch brothers and, and other business interests pushed that agenda and funded institutes. And, and, and you know, we, we understand that Fox News emerged from that. And, and so I think we're aware of a right-wing war on the idea of government, on the idea, essentially, on the fundamental truth about government, which is that the government is us. The government is, you know, what we do together. What I think is less understood is that the political right would never have been able to pull off that revolution without a loyal opposition. And one of the dynamics that emerges when you win a revolution is that everybody is playing on the new turf that you've created. And the political right was so successful in its war against government that everybody in American life today, since the 80s, you could say, has been playing on its field. Now, you may be on the other side of its field in opposition to the forces of the anti-government right, but you're still playing on its field. And so when Bill Clinton says the era of big government's over, it's not because he hates government or maybe even deeply believes that. It's because he's playing on the field of a revolution that has been successful at making many people think government is the enemy. When Barack Obama took office and as one of the first you know, new offices, he created the Office of Social Innovation. Uh, the website said top-down programs from Washington don't work anymore. A, a preposterous and untrue claim. Again, that's what it looks like when, when people on the left absorb almost like secondhand smoke the ideology 
kind of anti-government ideology of the right. This reminds me of a quote from uh, Matthew Dowd, uh, former uh, George W. Bush advisor, who said, uh, if you argue against us while using our language, we're winning. It seems that's uh, this is another episode of that. Right, that's a great way to put it. Today's episode is sponsored by Mova Globes, definitely the most unique globes out there. Through the use of science that seems like magic, they stand on a small pedestal and without power cords or batteries, just silently spin. And the secret is that they harness the power of ambient light along with the Earth's magnetic field. But of course, a spinning globe, no matter how ingenious, won't do you much good if it doesn't look good. That's why Mova went out of their way to create some of the most beautiful globes I've ever seen. They have political maps, both modern and antique, as well as satellite imagery maps. And not just of Earth, they have all the planets, plus a few moons and an asteroid too. Uh, and if planets aren't your thing, they also have a variety of works of art that have been globified, like Van Gogh, Monet, and more. So whether you're looking for a special gift or just something to replace that old boring photo of your family on your desk, check out what Mova Globes has to offer. Go to movaglobes.com slash best and use the coupon code best to receive 10% off your order. That's movaglobes.com slash best and coupon code best for 10% off. It's a sign of the dysfunction of our democracy that we cover a public policy issue like homelessness, not as a matter of competing policy proposals from our elected officials or from civil society organizations, but as an argument between two billionaires. Why has it come to this? Well, among the reasons for me it's come to this is the unnecessary and unwelcome, I think, social attitude that we have at the moment in the United States about big philanthropists. So sometimes I think that what we have at the moment is a society in which the people who have amassed enormous mountains of wealth in the marketplace and are in that respect hugely successful examples for other people as entrepreneurs do everything they can legally to diminish their taxation to zero and, in that respect, withdraw as much as possible from participating in democratic society as a citizen, one amongst many. You mean by what would have been a big tax Yes, by the tax contribution, where they could affect the distribution of those tax dollars through their vote for their preferred candidates. And by withdrawing their tax contributions, as I say, mostly in legal ways, they then take a further tax advantage to set up a private foundation, announce themselves as a grand philanthropist who will distribute, according to his or her preferences alone, a bunch of public benefits for other people. And in return for this series of activities, expect the gratitude of the rest of the citizens for all of this. You know, the short way I'd put this is that big philanthropy is an exercise of power. And wherever there's concentrated power in a democratic society, uh, the civic attitude toward it should be scrutiny, not gratitude. So I think gratitude to our big philanthropists is fine if at the end of the day, the exercise of their power is to support democracy. But that we shouldn't begin with gratitude. We should begin with scrutiny. The way that you've described our major donors in this country, the wealthiest among us, is pretty 
skeptical. You know, you you note that they are giving in order to reduce their tax burden, that they are setting up foundations so they can carry out their own kind of pet projects and that kind of thing. And, you know, the other side of that coin, of course, a more generous one would be to say, you know, they're simply, you know, utilizing the laws that we've made in this country and that they are trying to do as much good as they can with the money that they have. How would you respond to that? Right. They're trying to do as much good as they can with the money that they have as a private individual who is answerable to no one else. So they're not acting as a citizen. They're acting as a insulated, unaccountable donor. And to be clear, there are philanthropic activities that I think are wonderful and supportive of democracy but not the mere declaration or intention of, of undertaking philanthropy. There are ways in which philanthropy undermines democratic societies, can be paternalistic and substitute the judgment of the philanthropist for the beneficiary. There are ways in which philanthropy can undermine the equal standing of people. There are all kinds of moral dimensions and political dimensions of philanthropy that I think we overlook today. And the book, really aims to try to uncover and bring to the surface these various issues so that we can stare at them in the full light of the day and examine them in some larger frameworks that the policies we have channel philanthropy for the better rather than the worse. And let me emphasize here, this is not a partisan view. It's not a complaint about people who have left-leaning political views in their philanthropy or right-leaning political views. This is not an argument against the Koch brothers or against Tom Steyer or George Soros. This is about any philanthropist who tries to wield her power by converting her private assets into some form of public influence. You talk about the role of uh, foundations quite a bit in your book, and you have said that America's foundations, which now hold some $800 billion in assets, from what I understand, actually benefit from inequality. How so? Why do you say that? Well, the... The kind of necessary background condition for the creation of foundations is economic inequality. Uh, if there were a much more equal society in which we didn't have billionaires and millionaires in the numbers we do today, we would see less philanthropy. So one of the interesting background conditions of philanthropy is this relationship between outsized inequality and then growth in philanthropy, or as I think I put it in the book, that wealth inequality might be a foe to civic comedy, but it is a friend to private philanthropy. And the rise of philanthropy in the past 15 or 20 years seems to me a direct outgrowth of the rise of inequality in the United States. And is that the fault of the wealthy? No, uh, not necessarily. The laws and public policies that we have that allow wealth to be accumulated at the rates that it has been today, Jeff Bezos having whatever it is, 150 or $60 billion, are not the fault of any one person alone. There are all kinds of dynamics that go on in the marketplace that have allowed the outsized wealth to accumulate in the way we have. I'll point out that I'm 
persuaded by the idea that this is not the natural activity of kind of capitalistic society, but it's partly a product of the laws that we have and the decisions we've made with respect to taxation, tolerance of various forms of monopoly or concentrated industrial positions for companies. And we could and indeed should have a set of policy changes that would diminish the number of billionaires we have. There's nothing essential to the operation of a healthy marketplace or a healthy democratic society that requires lots of billionaires. Requires opportunities and incentives for people to take risk and to create entrepreneurial efforts in the marketplace and in civil society. But it doesn't require the outsize inequality and wealth that we see in the United States and elsewhere today. In the prologue of the book, you quote Oscar Wilde when he said, the people who do the most harm are the people who try to do the most good. I guess that's what you were laying out there when you're talking about some of the biggest contemporary world businesses and then the same people turn around and become philanthropists. Yeah, and I think that quote, I mean, even in the book, I keep my own slight distance from that quote because I think it's a very, it's an idea that makes you spit up your coffee. But what he he was specifically talking about slavery in the 19th century, and he was making the case that the worst slave owners were the ones who fully accepted and embraced slavery, but were really nice to their slaves. Maybe they taught them to read. Maybe they gave them one day off a week from whipping and made a really big deal about that. And the reason he thought those people were the worst was that they prevented the reality of the institution from being seen. And I think when you look at some of the the billionaires who are the the most kind of famous givers today. Let's take Mark Zuckerberg, or let's take the Sackler family. You know, one one after another. Mark Zuckerberg has made an enormous show of both philanthropic giving as well as this idea that his business is sort of humanitarian in its own right by being a community builder. And I think that has given Mark Zuckerberg reputational space, by which I mean all of us for some years sort of vaguely admiring the fact that he was doing these sort of humanitarian things, it gave him a lot of space to actually create a lot of damage to our democracy. Now now we know about that damage, and it's becoming obvious, and the tide is turning against him. But that giving he did, it may have made the world better at the margin, but what it also did was allow someone like Mark Zuckerberg to compromise the most important thing we have, which is our private information and our and our electoral democracy. You take the Sackler family, which is the family behind Purdue Pharma, and certain members of that family and executives at that company are now known. The state of New York has a, a complaint against the family that's laid this out in great detail, that they not only – you know, we're involved in inventing and selling this drug, OxyContin, but it, at many places in the in the journey where concerns were being raised about addiction and epidemic, uh, push harder and harder to sell it, to push it on communities instead of, you know, doing the human thing, which mm-hmm. is to say, hey, people are dying. And through that whole period, they sprinkled a lot of philanthropic coin, not as much as they were making. We're talking about millions, not billions. They were making billions, but they were sprinkling millions on arts institutions, on all kinds of institutions, usually in the kinds of power centers of New York, D.C., London, where people 
where, you know, the, where the journalists live, where the think tank people live, where the regulators who could come after them live. And they too bought themselves this kind of reputational space where they were able to do this for decades. And only in the last couple years have, have we really seen through their moral haze. How much do you need to separate the businesses that some of these people are in from the charities themselves? Like, obviously, the Sacklers uh, are now getting so much criticism for the way they were in the opioid business um, that some people that some institutions that were taking their charities will will no longer do so. Um, there are other examples like that. There are others, though, that are not so clear cut. Um, so if somebody like Bill Gates gets super rich because of Microsoft and then he starts the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, you know, and there's this pledge that a lot of billionaires have taken to give away, I forget what the percentage was, 90% majority, whatever, majority, yeah. m majority of their money by the time they die to philanthropic causes. I mean, what else would you rather have the super rich right. do with their money? So do you need to separate those two things to some degree? That's a good that's a good question. You should get your own show, Brian. Um, <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll apply. I, I, you know, I so the cases I laid out at the beginning, the kind of Sackler and Zuckerberg cases, those are the easy cases in a way, right, where it's pretty obvious that you've you've committed some pretty significant social damage. And it's pretty obvious that you're giving either just kind of can't overwhelm the effect of that damage or in some cases is, is purely designed as a marketing enterprise to cover it up. You know, when, when Coca-Cola might do a little health initiative to help kids, you know, lose a little weight while not refraining from selling those kids that crap that they, they shouldn't be drinking. Um, but the case you raise, Gates and there's others, it gets more complicated. There's a lot of people who haven't made money in such an extreme you know, and harmful way. Um, we know with Gates, you still have the issue of antitrust and monopoly, which sounds abstract to people. But what it often means is a company getting big by essentially denying oxygen to any other aspiring company in a particular time period and in industry. And that actually does have pretty significant social costs, particularly for people who are less well connected, don't have easier access to VC money. But, but let's set that aside and say, even if you made your money honorably, um, you know, you, you just sold a product that wasn't harmful, that was nicely made and, and, and you created jobs and you, and you have all that money. The, the reason you still have all that money is we have a taxation system um, that over the last 30, 40 years has hugely prioritized your ability to make and keep an enormous amount of money at the expense of the priority of supporting common institutions that allow people to live a decent life. And so part of what I'm trying to push in the book is not just the idea of individual culpability, which is easy in the case like the Sacklers, but also the idea that you are responsible as an extraordinarily privileged person who claims that you want to make the world better. You're responsible to take on systems that are unfair, that have unduly advantaged you over other people. And if you say you're changing the world the way you have, you know, hedge funder Ray Dalio, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta fight this inequality thing, right? Which is mm -hmm. like, Fox is declaring, you know, the, uh, their, 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 their sadness at all the hen killings. Um, if you, if you claim you're trying to change the world, but you're not doing it in ways that would actually change the system. You're creating one little charter school here, putting your name on it. You're donating to one little girls who code program here. That's all great, 
but you are refusing, as so many of these people do, to actually change the world in ways that would require your own world to change, would put your own privilege at risk, would actually cost you something, including some of your wealth. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. But of course, I don't just depend on selfless kindness alone to fund the show. Patrons receive a whole lot of bonus content in addition to ad-free versions of the show. For instance, in addition to bonus clips on the topics we've been covering, recent bonus episodes have included a conversation about prohibition versus harm mitigation. It's a concept we're more familiar with regarding the prohibition of alcohol and the war on drugs, but it can be applied to other places as well, so members and I have been discussing that. Plus, uh, have you heard my idea on how to fix arguments? Especially for cable news, but you know, it sort of works anywhere. The idea is to ask someone to describe the argument partner's perspective first, the alternate perspective to their own, before they make the case for their own point of view. And if they can't do it, then you know there's no reason to believe that they know what they're talking about, because how could a person possibly know they're right if they don't even understand the opposing point of view? Well, I've gotten to put that strategy into practice recently as a couple of people have written in, making a case for something they want me to believe, while wildly mischaracterizing the opposing perspective. So I was pretty excited to get to put my theory into practice, so I told that story for the members as well. So it's not just additional clips you're missing out on, there's all kinds of interesting discussion happening for the members. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash bestofleft, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. And even if it isn't entirely selfless, it's still very kind of you to support the production of the show for all to hear whether they can afford to donate or not. So thanks so much for the support. First off, I'm I'm curious how much of your whole critique of philanthropy depends on the tax benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if we imagine the world in which philanthropy was not actually tax deductible, what what percentage of your critique would remain, yeah. or what percentage of the strength of your critique would do you think would would remain? Yeah, uh, some of the critique involves um, focusing on the tax advantages, but but I think a good part of it indeed remains because what I'm uh, what I aim to do is to scrutinize the power of the philanthropist, even in the absence of any tax advantage. So, uh, uh, I mean, in certain respects, what I think of as the function of the full-on criticism at the start of any uh, of any of the presentations I make or what comes in, in the book is to say something in the following um, direction, that the common attitude um, in society today is that when, as you started off the, the podcast by saying the activities of Jeff Bezos or of Open Philanthropy Project or of Lorene Pell Jobs or Bill Gates or going back a century, the Rockefeller Carnegie's of the world, um, when people choose to give their money away for some um, um, social or public purpose, rather than engage in more private consumption, the appropriate attitude that we should have to it is gratitude because 
um, philanthropy should always be preferable to more private consumption. And I want to contest that. I want to say that big philanthropy in particular is a form of power. Power can be used to support democracy, but power can also be used to undermine it in various ways. And the philanthropists deserve scrutiny rather than gratitude, or at least scrutiny in addition to gratitude, uh, in order to make sure that the power that they wield is compatible with and indeed supportive of democratic ideals and institutions rather than an effort to bypass or undermine those ideals and institutions. Could you give an example of uh, philanthropy undermining democracy, like a a specific uh, use of money? Uh, sure. Um, uh, well, maybe the best example to give is is what start, uh, how I start the book. Uh, when John D. Rockefeller uh, wanted to create the Rockefeller Foundation um, about 100 years ago, he went off to the U.S. Congress to ask uh, for the passage of a bill that would legally incorporate the Rockefeller Foundation with a very general purpose. And uh, he met with extraordinary criticism and resistance. Some people objected to the source of his mountain of wealth, which came from, you know, the Standard Oil and various types of monopolistic business practices and um, union-busting techniques. And so people just thought this was a kind of reputational um, effort to to, uh, undo his misdeeds in accumulating the fortune. Those are interesting criticisms, but don't get to the heart of what I have in mind. The more interesting criticism is that when people uh, undertake big philanthropy like Rockefeller and direct their private resources for some public influence, um, in particular to try to change public policies, as places, mm-hmm. for example, like the Open Philanthropy Project do, and in fact, the Gates Foundation, most big philanthropy is striving to bring about policy change. Well, that represents a plutocratic element in a democratic society that otherwise prizes political equality. And why it is that we should have a set of laws and public policies that not merely permit, but in fact, promote the activity of big philanthropy to allow wealthy people, definitionally, since that's what philanthropy is in this particular case, um, to have a kind right. of privileged perch in which to try to influence public policy seems on the face of it, um, at the very least, tension-ridden with the ordinary expectation of political equality. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm more sympathetic to that argument. Like, thinking of the type of philanthropy aimed at influencing public policy, um, I'm more sympathetic to the idea that that's an exercise of power um, that could be problematic than I am to the argument that something like you know, giving money to universities or to people to like giving out malarial bed nets or even, you know, giving money to school districts for a specific intervention if they, you know, choose to accept that. Are there any examples of philanthropy not aimed at public policy change that you would consider problematic? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there are, there are a lot of them. I mean, we can start with some uh, I think obvious ones, ones that I'd be surprised if you had a, um, any a, any a way to reject as well. Um, part of what we expect in the landscape of uh, philanthropy, part of what the laws permit is the preference of the donor to guide the uh, philanthropic purpose in perpetuity. So, for example, yeah. we can go back in time and look at various philanthropic projects in which the 
uh, well-intended and altruistically oriented activity of a donor um, basically fixes in perpetuity the purpose of the charitable or philanthropic gift. And, you know, the phrase here that comes to mind is the dead hand of the donor reaches out of the grave to strangle the preferences of future <laughs> generations. And this is especially um, in tension with any type of efficiency because um, cir- circumstances change and things evolve. So here's a good example of a, of a problem of the sort you describe. In the pre-civil rights era South, um, American South, various philanthropists, some some supported the project of integrated public schools or integrated public parks or integrated public swimming pools. Others gave various philanthropic gifts to support segregated parks, swimming pools, and schools. And um, each of those gifts was permissible at that time. But because these various types of gifts came with donor direction guaranteed in perpetuity, the large number of gifts in the American South pre-1964, pre the Brown versus Board of Education decision that went to support Mm. um, segregated parks, segregated swimming pools, um, well, you couldn't just sweep aside the preference of the donor by the passage of the law. Um, So you had these really interesting outcomes in those cases where there was one in particular in Georgia, where someone had set aside money for a public park, which was intended to be whites only. Um, 1964 comes around, Brown versus Board comes around, now this is no longer constitutional. And so the solution to that problem was that the existing park um, owned by the public but conditioned for whites only um, was to be sold um, to private interests. And then um, the money that was gained from the proceeds to, re- to be returned to the heirs of the original donor. So it wasn't as if law then just overrode the donor preference and said, now it shall be um, an integrated public park. Uh, the park had to be eliminated um, sold off to private interests, and then the money returned to the heirs of the original donor. And it just shows how the, the dead hand of the donor can not always be as enlightened as we might wish. I'm speaking with Anand Gurderas, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, just out from Knopf. This ideology that you refer to has certain limits. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this quote from Branko Milanovic, uh, economist, uh, one of the world's leading experts in income distribution. But he said, uh, I was at a think tank in Washington, uh, I believe it was at one of the Carnegie uh, uh, Institutes. The president of the think tank told me, you can do whatever you want, but just don't call it inequality. Put the word poverty in there. Because we have many rich people on our board and they see the word poverty, it makes them feel good because it means they're really nice people who care about the poor. When they see the word inequality, it makes them upset because it means you want to take money from them. Is that uh, the kind of worldview you're talking about? Yeah. In fact, I, I quote one of the guys who is in the leadership of the TED conference, and he, he makes that same point, which is, uh, and I think it's worth teasing out because it maps onto a kind of deeper structure here, which is, you know, poverty, the words poverty and equality are not the same. But when we're trying to solve them, we're often referring to helping the same people, the same communities or the same, you know, there's a, there's a resonance there. And it's often, you know, practical terms, the same set of issues and same areas of work. So what is different about call, saying I want to work on poverty versus saying I want to work on inequality? 
Well, poverty is entirely about the people you're trying to help. And there's no other players in that drama. It is exclusively a drama about the people being helped. And you're the one helping them. You're the one making it better. And so that is a role that, that, that when you talk about poverty, it puts rich people into a place where they're purely helpers. When you talk about inequality, before you even get to the help and what do you do, you're describing a situation that is relational rather than just a description of where the poor are. You're describing a situation where some have and others don't. And that starts to raise a question of whether they have because the others don't or whether the others don't have because they do. And in other words, that's a way of looking at some of the same people, same communities, same problems, but in a way that is systemic and in a way that is, that is, a, that is pointing fingers and willing to name names and, and, and lay blame. And that is precisely what the winners of our age refuse. They are willing to help. They're willing to solve problems. They're willing to contribute to making a fairer world. But what they insist on in turn is that your way of solving it will not accuse them. We'll bring them along. We'll ask their consent. We'll actually give them power over how we do the solution. And we'll never tell them that they are part of the problem, um, which is why in many ways giving is a purchase rather than a, a, a surrender because what they're purchasing through that giving is a kind of immunity from questions about how they made the money and the kind of system that they uphold that causes these problems. I believe you quote uh, a venture capitalist as saying, uh, if we throw some income at them, we kind of bribe them uh, so they don't overthrow us. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. I was uh, with Vinod Khosla, the billionaire venture capitalist in Silicon Valley in his, in his nice uh, purple-themed uh, offices. And we're kind of talking about, he, he said something that, that I found really fascinating. He's a, he said, you know, he, and he is someone who in many ways has been more vocal on the fact that, that a lot of the rich people around him are living in a, in a bubble and don't understand the anger around them. So, so he's been, he's tried to be out front on that issue. And he said to me, what a lot of people don't understand is that capitalism exists by permission of democracy. And I, and that kind of just, made me think for a second. Capitalism exists by permission of democracy. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, well, you know, if you, you can have your capitalism, you can have your nice fund over here. But if you, if you don't, if you, you know, if you're, if you're creating a situation where 95% of people can't live a decent life and that, you know, they're going to, they're going to revolt. And we kind of both looked over to the window of this long conference room, beautiful office. And I said, like, it would just seem very physical suddenly. I was like, yeah, like people are going to come through that window. And he said, yeah, they're going to, they're going to come through that window. If you create a world through capitalism where most people are doomed. And so he said, you know, so therefore you have to use democracy to kind of essentially bribe enough people to, to kind of leave you alone. Now that's not my view. I mean, I, I, I think we need to aim bigger for democracy than, than bribing people to leave venture capitalists alone. But I think it gets at, something very important that he understands that a lot of rich people don't, which is this idea that capitalism does exist by permission of democracy. Um, we treat capitalism as a natural thing, but it's not. We give companies charters to be companies. We give that to them. They don't have to give that to them. Uh, we could ask for whatever we want in those charters. We give them limited liability. We give them the regulations and contract law that allow them to make their plans and make their deals. We could change any of that. All of that all of what they build is on top of what we share in common. And so 
there's an idea in American life that what business people do is natural and the society's efforts to regulate it are unnatural and ex post facto. And I think we just need to flip that around. The idea of capitalism exists by permission of democracy suggests that in fact, what is more natural, well, you got the state of nature and then you got people coming together to create a political community. And then capitalism actually flourishes once we have a set of institutions that allows you to like buy potatoes for your French fry company, um, knowing that if the supplier doesn't actually send the potatoes, you can sue them in court. Uh, there's no business anywhere in the world where you don't know that you could sue the guy in court, where, where, where there's no protection in case the person who sells your shares on Wall Street turns out to be a charlatan, et cetera, et cetera. Capitalism exists on top of infrastructure that we share in common. And we need to do a much better job than we have as a society in using that as leverage and asking for what we want um, when we extend that to companies. Even the most extreme libertarian would agree uh, that uh, an essential role of government uh, in supporting capitalism is uh, enforcing contracts. But uh, where they will uh, uh, depart from that is uh, when you start talking about using government uh, to uh, ameliorate social problems, redistribute income, uh, you know, uh, constrain the behavior of, uh, of those capitalists. But the kinds of people you're writing about are not those sorts of extreme libertarians. They're not, you know, Patrick Friedman uh, writing in the Cato uh, Journal a few years ago where he said capitalism uh, is in incompatible with democracy. Libertarianism, rather, is in incompatible with democracy. They have ideas of uh, ameliorating social problems, but their approach to these things uh, follows a certain model, right? Uh, they don't really want uh, – very broad overhaul. I, I noticed uh, some Google dude the other day said we need to do something that will um, improve the lives of about a hundred thousand people. Um, but you know, he's not interested in unions, which would change the balance of power involving millions of people. He's like looking at little initiatives that are going to change the lives of a few hundred thousand people. What what is the the, the model of of social change that the kinds of uh, uh, people in market world uh, you wrote about? What is their what is their model of, of of social change of ameliorating social problems? Rich people's idea of change is change that doesn't threaten rich people. So what I found is that on every major public policy question of our time, particularly the areas where I think you could say this country is most in need of real change, what rich people do is proffer a, a kind of counteroffer to real change, right? So you take public education. It's pretty clear that there's no justification for funding public education the way we do, which is according to the home values in your neighborhood. It's hard to come up with a rationale for why it's fair to give a six-year-old an education based on who had the nicest house. So we know that. But fixing that issue that way at the level that I'm talking about would, while it would help tens of millions of people, um, it would also solve it in ways that hurt rich people. Right? It would, it would make the public schools in Greenwich and Marin fall to the level of the average which is the case in many rich countries. Um, it would mean that rich people no longer got better public schools than other people. And that would be painful for them. It would also hurt their home prices. I mean, in some of these neighborhoods, 20, 30% of the home value is that really good public school that you therefore don't need to send your kid to private school you know, for. And that's, that's the kind of change that rich people can't believe in. And so therefore, what will happen and this is sometimes unconscious and sometimes conscious, is that they will make a, a, a counteroffer, um, you know, what I call a counteroffer, which is, gosh, this 
public education problem is so terrible. Why don't we create a charter school in our city? I mean, it won't be near our neighborhood because we wouldn't want those kids near us. But let's create it, you know, five, seven, ten miles away. We'll create a charter school on the other side of town, far away from us. And, you know, and we'll mentor those minority kids. And, you know, and you may have someone who works in finance boasting to his or her friends that, you know, uh, these three black boys that I mentored um, at this charter school and I feel so good about it and, you know, all of that. Why is that an appealing solution? You seem like you're helping. You are helping. You're going to meet these kids that you're helping. You're going to see and, and encounter them and know that you did make a difference in their lives. But you are able to change things in ways that don't, don't don't change anything at all for you. That don't that keep that protect your privileges. And that's a huge uh, a huge advantage. That's funny, you know. The contrast with uh, FDR and the New Deal is striking because. Roosevelt emerged out of the elite and uh, was had the uh, the confidence to step on their toes. Uh, where you look at people like the two Clintons uh, and Obama emerge from modest origins, uh, in Bill's case, quite poor origins, and rose through the meritocratic world and uh, came to admire uh, rich people and not have he did not welcome their hatred the way FDR did. Um, is there some kind of problem of leadership here? Yeah, I mean, I. I one of the things I talk about is this idea of uh, we, need, we need more privileged people being traitors to their class the way FDR was. And we need more rich people willing to, you know, whether it's political leaders who've, who've had luck or, or, or business leaders who have a lot of money, being willing to say, look, I am safe enough and secure enough as a person that I'm going to use my privilege to interrogate the system through which I ascended. And we don't have that as much as we should. So what we end up with is a pattern where people kind of rise up through these structures. And then once they become successful, they basically seek the kind of change that walls, you know, builds a wall um, around their own privileges. And I think what FDR did was help build a kind of America that was not good for people like him. It was not good for the kind of rich people that he came from, that frankly built... Um, built a nation of shared institutions and shared systems at the expense of tremendous privilege. If you just look at the share of income held by the top 1%, which is like the social world he came from, it totally crashed after um, not just the Great Depression, but also his policies and, and didn't really reverse until the mid-80s, thanks to Reagan. Um, through much of that period, the top 1% held somewhere in the you know, 12, 13, 14% of the nation's income. Now it's back up to where it was before, which is 25%. Those are two very different Americas. Um, and by the way, rich people still have a lot of stuff in the, in, in the kind of FDR America. But one of the things when talking about FDR, FDR that's interesting is, you know, I think there are these great cycles in American history where, as Arthur Schlesinger called them, and if you lived in the 30s through the kind of 70s, whoever was president, Republican or Democrat, you lived in FDR's world. You were playing on his field. And I think if you've lived at any time in America since the 80s, you've been living on Reagan's field. And I think the question is, the thing that actually fills me with excitement these days is I think Trump is discrediting the idea of rich people as our saviors. And I wonder whether we're on the verge of another one of those pivots to a new cycle that is decades long and and defined by a kind of quest for social reform and and the repair of our deep systems and not just 
you know, cupcake companies that give back. We've just heard clips today starting with Future Perfect drawing the parallels between the first Gilded Age and the second Gilded Age of today. Jacobin Radio spoke with Anand Garudardas about Market World and the myth of win-win answers to society's problems. Tiny Spark spoke with Rob Reich about how philanthropy is destroying democracy through inequality and anti-democratic control of the distribution of social improvement projects. On The Brian Lehrer Show, they discussed how the kind slave owners helped perpetuate the system by partially hiding the horrors of slavery, somewhat how philanthropists and do-gooders help perpetuate the horrors of systemic inequality by helping to mitigate the system, but only on the periphery. Rationally Speaking also spoke with Rob Reich about why we should see philanthropy as another version of concentrated power, which deserves our scrutiny more than our praise. And finally, we just heard part two of Jacobin Radio talking with Anand Garudadas about how, like a flip side to the do-gooders unconsciously upholding the system, Trump is actually exposing and discrediting it in a way that may help bring about its downfall. Members this week will hear some fantastic additional material on how the fire at Notre Dame and the outpouring of philanthropic donations that flooded in helped demonstrate the vast inequality in France. Plus, we look at how the myth of wealth equating to capability mixes in with all of this, leading people to believe that rich people are inherently better at knowing how to solve problems, whether the necessary skill sets are in any way transferable from how they made their money. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft, and now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is James. I'm in, uh, uh, outside of Sacramento, California. I uh, love you, love the show. Uh, you guys are doing a wonderful job informing us of what's uh, wrong out there. Listen, um, I haven't heard anything about um, extreme inequality in this country. Um, basically, uh, you know, if when the uh, top 1% has 40% of this country's wealth, that's extreme. When the average CEO makes like three or four hundred times what uh, the average worker makes, that's extreme. You know, Obama said, uh, you know, a long time ago that uh, inequality was the number one issue that's going on. Well, it still is. It's probably worse now under good old uh, asshole, and you'll know who I'm talking about. Please, talk about inequality, really. I think that's the one thing that, that cuts across all lines, all, you know, I mean, it affects some people worse than others, but ultimately, you know, um, you know, I appreciate the identity politics. I do, but you guys have got to talk about inequality, please. That's 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 the as far as I'm concerned of this next election, um, and probably for the next you know few decades, extreme inequality is the number one issue. That is, you know, because if it keeps getting worse and more and more people get poor, we'll have a two-tier system in this in this society, and we'll fall definitely. We'll fall to um, tyranny. Please, please talk about this. Thank you.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in response to the voicemail we just heard, I have to say, I love a well-timed complaint. So, like, a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, I received a message from someone saying, why, oh, why, paraphrasing, obviously, why have you not talked about modern monetary theory? This is really important. You need to talk about it. And then, like, very quickly after came the follow-up, oh, wait, never mind. I just refreshed the feed, and I see that the most recent episode is entirely dedicated to modern monetary theory. Nice work. So similarly with James, uh, talking about inequality, perfectly well-timed. Uh, he, he was not responding to the show. Uh, I was not making this episode in response to him. It just worked out well. But I got to say, when I first heard his message, my first thought was, what are you talking about? I talk about inequality all the time. And so that I went to my own website, put in a little search bar, inequality, and came up with the most recent episode that's like really specifically focused on inequality is from January 2016. Uh, that's number 986, The Trouble with Extreme Wealth Inequality, in case you want to check it out. And I was shocked that that was the case. So, so James is certainly right in one sense that I haven't been explicitly focusing on inequality like that, but here's why I was confused. And I thought, wait, what are you talking about? We've, we've been talking about that. And it's because uh, largely in the Trump era, like from the whole, the run up to the election and then certainly after this show has sort of taken a turn for the specific. Like back years and years ago, I, I felt like I had, you know, 10, 15 topics or so that would continually rotate. They'd be, you know, economics, foreign policy, gender equality, LGBTQ, and just sort of like on a rotation and what's happening in the world of these issues. And more recently, for a variety of reasons, I have taken the show in a slightly different direction where I, I dive way deeper on a specific issue. So I, I don't feel like I do a topic like economics. I do a topic like the effects of philanthropy on inequality. You know what I mean? And, and so how this has played out is that like instead of doing a what's up with economics or what's up with inequality, I've done a show about neoliberalism or Instead of what's up with economics or inequality, I've done monopoly capitalism or the flip side of the horrors of capitalism is the benefits of labor rights or the benefits of a Scandinavian social system or FDR's four freedoms and the, and the economic bill of rights. Those are all topics that I have done in the last six months. So in general, I, I actually agree that it's good to go back over basics from time to time just to make sure everyone's caught up. But this at least explains why it appears as though I haven't covered inequality specifically in a while 
while at the same time, I think, hey, wait a second. No, I talk about that all the time. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> um, but from the outside perspective, you could think, oh, Jay hasn't even done an episode on inequality in like three and a half years. And now I have one more quick thing for you, a little bonus clip from today's topic, uh, because this one was so fascinating for me to hear, but I wanted to talk about it first. So within the last month, two months, I told this little story about race. So Amanda's grandmother, now deceased, grew up in the South, but was an FDR Democrat her whole life. So she was as progressive of a 90-plus-year-old woman raised in the South as she could possibly have been. She definitely had some funky uh, thoughts on race, but she tried to not be racist, which was basically as much as we could ask. And she told this little, just this brief little story that I relayed on the show recently, and her perspective on race and the the division between the North and the South, because uh, particularly people in the South think of everything as the divisions between the North and the South. So uh, she described racism in the two areas this way. She said, in the South, we love the individual, but we hate the group, meaning that they were actually around Black people a fair amount, and especially white families would often hire like black housekeepers and nannies. So white children were partially raised by black people. So there's, there's a lot of interracial contact. And so they, they would meet these individual people and like them, but the systemic racism was so strong that they still disliked the group as a whole because even though they had these interactions in their own lives that disproved all of the stereotypes that they, that they would have about black people. So the South loves the individual, but hates the group and the North loves the group is in favor of, you know, the freedom for black people and them getting their rights and all of that. But they hate the individual, meaning in the North, you get a lot less actual contact with people of color and so when you do, in those rare instances, you're immediately afraid of them, you don't necessarily want them around, and so forth. So that, that was her little perspective on on race, and I, I related that into how racists could end up voting for Obama, because there's a big difference between voting for a black guy, meaning the the stereotypical vision any individual person may have in their minds of what that means, what a black guy means, versus voting for Barack Obama, which is a very different thing for a lot of people than a black guy. So a racist might not want to vote for the vision they have in their minds of a black guy, but they may be perfectly happy to vote for Obama because He's very different than the image they have in their minds. So anyway, all of that as as prelude to this clip that I heard while doing the research for today's show. I had an interesting conversation recently with an elderly African American couple from Georgia, and they were they they said this thing that I guess is a, maybe a well known joke in the South, but I, I I never heard it, which is that in the South the kind of white racism takes the form of blacks can be close but they can't rise, and the North you right. know they can rise but they can't be close. Right. And I think that dynamic, the northern dynamic in that equation, 
threads through a lot of the kinds of people I talk about in this book, where there's this belief in equality in theory, but it cannot come at the expense of the really good public schools in Greenwich. There's a belief in people having better health care, but if it's going to make every company in America like 3% less profitable, well, that seems like a bridge too far. There's a belief in kids having a decent daycare and not having these extreme daycares where parents have to drop them off at three in the morning because their parents' schedules change every day according to the Kronos app that like dictates when they work. I think no one believes in that in theory among the set that I'm talking about. On the other hand, the companies that your hedge fund invests in or the private equity deal that you just did may be the source of pressure on that company to shave costs in the precise way that led to it adopting the Kronos app, dynamic scheduling, and right. jerking workers around like that. And so what I became interested in this question is this question of this response to an age of extreme inequality that was circumscribed and that was full of these silences. Yes, we have to do more about each of these issues, but we can only do it in a way that is a win-win. They can rise, but they can't be close. Uh, that was Anand Gurudas, again, as we heard in the main show. Uh, that clip was from Why Is This Happening with Chris Hayes. And like him, I had never heard that specific version of you know what he described as like a well-known maybe joke in the South. And, uh, and I just thought, what a great way to describe that and how interesting and and f maybe darkly funny that i had brought up a very similar uh, idea just described in a, in a different way recently so with that we will wrap up for the day please keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash best of the left that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on apple podcast and facebook to help others find the show for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Best of the Left.